All right, we continue with our uh, podcast series of Life in Furnace Village of Easton during the 1940s and 50s. And uh, uh, today's subject, a uh, little uh, different from the others, the fabrics and whatnot, things that we wore. Uh, the title of today's uh, presentation is Whistle Britches and Other Furnace Village Apparel. Boys wore corduroy knickerbockers. Knickers in the vernacular in Furnace Village in the 40s. These pants went down only to just under the knees in theory with an elastic band sewn into the seam to hold them up properly. It never happened that way in practice, however. With each of us lads running about with our socks down around our ankles and the trousers drooping below the knees. Today's baseball players wear a variation of the uh, old knickers but their elastic bands are much improved. A young lad, maybe 8 to 12 years of age, could be heard coming down the corridor of the grammar school by the sound made by the rubbing of the coarse fabric of the corduroy one thigh against the other. Hence the appellation whistle britches came about. Today's corduroys are of a much softer material and make no such noise. During World War II, an important source of fabric for clothing was the grain bags we of farm families had. The bags were printed in floral and other designs specifically to be used for dresses, skirts, shirts, and other pieces of clothing. Mothers were expected to be able to get the old Singer sewing machine out and stitch up the basic items of wear. My mom even made tablecloths of the grain bags Nothing was wasted during the war. Boys frequently wore a coat called a Macintosh. All wool and quite heavy, the coats featured a hood that could be pulled up over one's stocking hat in the real bad weather. The original Macintosh was a rubberized affair. The term later was applied to just about any overcoat. In the furnace, that style coat was very common. If it was a bit damp or a light rain was falling, we wore rubbers over our shoes. They just about covered the shoes. But for real foul days, we put on the overshoes. As the name suggests, these rubber fabric boots went over one's shoes. They are still made today, but those from the 40s came in the one color, black, and in one style. Today, the term overshoe can refer to dozens of styles and colors of pretty costly footwear. At about age 10, I received a pair of leather boots for my birthday that came up to my knees and had a knife holder on the outside. No knife was supplied, of course, but I thought I was pretty hot stuff with those boots. My father's shoes always fascinated me. He never threw a pair away. He was a reflection of the Depression years and he put all his old shoes under his bed. There was always another wearing or two that could be had from any pair he had. He would simply pull the old cardboard liner he had in a pair and replace it with a new piece of the same or similar material. Somewhere around age 12, I found Sam Cohen's Army and Navy store on Center Street in Brockton. I promptly established the uh, first Cobra combat team and bought the basic military insignia patches and batches badges along with hats and shirts. 
Tom and John Webster were reluctant enlistees. At that time, the Webster clan lived up on Paquanacan Avenue about two miles from my house. We thought nothing of that sort of bike ride to get to play war games together. We had great forts up behind my house at 455 Foundry Street. Not to blame them, but Tom and John got sick of my bossy ways from time to time and would resign now and then from our unit. There were never more than eight soldiers in the secretive, we thought they were secretive, <laughs> in this group. Once in Oliver Ames High School, Dick Brady, Richard Anderson, and I, for whatever reason, dressed alike many days in black slacks and navy sweaters of the black turtleneck variety. Brady and I had ankle-high cowboy-style boots. We held ourselves in such high esteem as nonconformists. The bulk of high schoolers at that time were in slacks with shirts and maybe penny loafers. For my trans transgressions, I was hauled into the boys' room by two yet-to-be-unnamed football players and beaten soundly. My right eye was badly cut by the big class ring on the linebacker's right hand, and the resulting black eye I carried for three weeks or so was my barrage of courage. I was literally thrown into the school corridor at the end of my treatment and found myself looking up into the eyes of Oliver Ames High School Principal Roger Warner. He wanted the perpetrator's names, but I still had my pride and kept my mouth shut. I sought revenge with a little sugar in the linebacker's car gas tank. Worked fine. That's the way I remember it, anyway.